Hey there, folks. Matt Hunsaker here, welcoming you back to the State Tax Show. Are you ever confused when you stand around the water cooler with your international tax colleagues? Well, today I've got a very special treat for you. Brian Davis joins the show to get you up to speed on international tax reform and to discuss state tax parallels. Well, I don't know about you guys, but it's back to school around here. Sort of. The kids are online for at least three weeks. I'm not sure how effective it is, so I thought I would pop in on them to see what is going on and give you a window into our lives. Some of the schoolwork I can help out with. The lowest point in Denmark is seven meters below sea level. The highest point is 173 Uh, meters above sea level. So it's... What is the range of elevations in Denmark? 166. 159. Wait, it's 180. I can even handle a little grammar. How's school going? I'm done with school and it was going good. Going well. But my oldest daughter is completely out of my league. What are you studying? I'm doing my physics right now. What are you doing in physics? Like graphing speeds. Do you have to do calculus? I have to do pre-calculus in my math class. Oh. Need help? Yes. Uh, go find mom. Okay. Other kids seem to forget that they are even in school. Are you supposed to be looking at pictures of puppies for school? We are getting math practice and reading. <laughs> and some of them use their newfound knowledge just to sass me. So what are you doing at school today? Are you recording me? No. Okay. I've done a lot of biology. What are you doing in biology? We are learning about ecology and symbiotic relationships. Do we have a symbiotic relationship? No, we have a parasitic or whatever. Relationship. Parasitical? No, it's um parasitism. Um I we are our relationship, you benefit from it, but I'm harmed by it. What? Wait, you're saying <laughs> I'm the parasite in this relationship? Yes, yes I am. Fingers crossed I will be back in the office soon enough. This is going to be the longest episode I've ever done. I usually edit my interviews down quite a bit, but today's was just too good to chop up, and I really think it's worth the investment of your time. There are so many interesting things going on in international taxation, and between you and me, it's kind of fun to see our federal colleagues get introduced to some of our concepts, like virtual presence nexus and apportionment. A lot of you state tax folks have been asking for a primer episode on what is going on with international tax reform, especially with BEPS and the latest Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 OECD initiatives. Many of you want to know what those things even are. I agree that this is important, and I think we are going to see a lot of international issues 
bleed over into the state tax world after all the dust settles on this. And we'll certainly do a deep dive at some point to discuss the interaction between what's going on in the global scene and what's going on in the salt scene. But for now, I grabbed my partner, Brian Davis. He's in Washington, D.C. and the head of our international tax group. And I dragged him into the virtual studio to give us a primer on the major concepts that you need to know about, even as a salt expert. Here's our discussion. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Uh, one of my crusades in life is to convince people that state and local tax lawyers need to be international tax lawyers as well. And there's a lot going on on the international scene right now, as you are aware. And so I thought it'd be useful to our listeners to hear from you kind of a, a broad overview of some of the things that are going on. And then maybe we can talk in detail about a few of those things that might ultimately play into the, the salt world. Perhaps you could just give us a little bit of background on the BEPS project and the latest inclusive framework to deliver what the OECD calls a multilateral consensus-based solution to the tax challenges arising from the digitalization of the economy. Sure, Matt. So um, first of all, I, I, I agree completely. I think we can learn a lot from each other. I think in many respects, the state and local tax world has run in advance of the international tax world. And so I think a lot of what you know and you've experienced in the state and local world uh, will help inform us as international tax practitioners. And I think the, true, uh, the same can be true from our perspective. So you mentioned the BEPS project. So for those of you that are not aware, and I would expect that most people would be aware of this at, at this point, even if they're not international tax practitioners, over the last eight to 10 years, the international tax framework has undergone a transformation largely led by both the United Nations and the OECD, two supranational bodies that have membership of countries that get together to help determine how tax rules should work once you start crossing borders and you reach other sovereign nations. And coming out of the a more the BEPS project, uh, which which stands for base erosion profit shifting, were a number of action items that the OECD recommended that countries implement to help police instances of double non-taxation in the cross-border space. And the proposals were wide-ranging, from anti-hybrid rules to rules relating to nexus uh, or permanent establishments in local countries to rules surrounding transfer pricing. And one of the action items and the action item I think that we're going to be focusing on here was action item one, which was really the taxation of the digital economy, recognizing that the world has evolved since many of our international rules were originally drafted. And it seems as though business is speeding forward with new business models and new ways of reaching people and consumers uh, in ways that hadn't been contemplated before. And so as a result of the BEPS project, it was determined when the final reports were issued in, in 2015 that really the digital economy could not be ring-fenced or should not be ring-fenced 
actually digitalization was influencing and, and imbued in almost every aspect of business today. And I think you can see that it's not just the, the large social media platforms or the digital goods platforms today that we think of in the digital space, but it's also the machinery manufacturer that uses technology to determine whether or not, and to provide a service to consumers that determines whether or not the product that was sold is functioning efficiently and providing real-time feedback. And so coming out of the BEPS project, the general consensus was of action one and, and the taxation of the digital economy that you could not ring fence the digital economy, but more work needed to be done to really understand how the digital economy was transforming and to think about it in how our international tax rules should evolve. A number of listeners have asked me, what is this pillar one and pillar two that I'm always hearing about? So maybe you could uh, explain to us kind of how that fits into uh, the, the things that you've just been describing to us. Sure. So after the uh, BEPS reports were issued, the OECD gathered a group of, of countries known as the Inclusive Framework. And this is a group of countries that determined they, would, they were going to form a working group to study digital taxation. And as part of that study, focused on the digital economy by looking at it using a two-pillar approach. And really what that means is one aspect of their work was really going to focus on looking at existing methods for allocating profit to jurisdictions. And that is principally in the international tax base based on standards of nexus. And trying to figure out a way to more appropriately in the, in the digital environment allocate profits to market jurisdictions. So that's what we, we will talk about that, but that's a fairly controversial pillar. Pillar two was the second element of determining how to address digital taxation. And that really was focused on developing global anti-base erosion rules designed to ensure that all businesses are subject to at least some level of minimum taxation. And so in the U.S. construct, that would be our guilty rules. It would be something that um, Pillar 2 would be seeking to evaluate and potentially propose other countries adopt. All right. So plenty of controversy surrounding Pillar 1. And I think that given the breadth of issues to discuss. We'll probably just focus on Pillar 1 related issues today. But in advance of Pillar 1, what are some countries doing unilaterally to, uh, to address this perceived lack of uh, appropriate taxation of the digital economy? Yeah, Matt. So um, coming out of the BEPS project, I think people were, or countries were dissatisfied with this notion that businesses were continuing to evolve and transform and were continuously able to reach into local jurisdictions without having what we would normally require to 
give that jurisdiction a taxing right. So in the again in the international space, it's nexus is is synonymous with permanent establishment, or permanent establishment is synonymous with nexus. And so a lot of countries felt as though they were losing out on revenue that was being generated as a result of technology companies in particular reaching into their jurisdictions, making sales, but then not paying an income tax because under the rules that exist, those companies didn't have a permanent establishment in the local jurisdiction. And therefore, the key criteria for giving that country a taxing right did not exist. And so, you know, a little bit of this is driven by populism and uh, some technical pragmatism. You know, politically, there's a view that large tech companies just don't pay enough tax and don't pay tax in the right places. And, you know, this dovetails into the kind of fair share arguments that permeated the, the BEPS work streams. Really, this notion that if you're going to be present in my jurisdiction, then you need to be a participant in helping fund the resources that are available to the folks in the jurisdiction. And then there's, you know, some, again, some pragmatism, uh, just recognizing that, you know, the rules that govern international corporate taxation were really written back in the, the mid 20th century. They may no longer be fit for purpose uh, in an age where physical location and specifically physicality is not a prerequisite for conducting business in the jurisdiction. And so, I mean, that's something that we've been, I mean, that's been our life in the salt world is <laughs> this whole concept of having rules that were written when people used to deliver stuff in trucks and trying to apply that now to companies that are providing very complicated and I guess geographically nebulous digital services. I mean, I, again, I think we probably as international practitioners could learn a lot from our state colleagues. Brian, practically speaking though, what are uh, these foreign countries doing and what kind of taxes are they enacting to address this perceived problem? So what we've seen is a proliferation of um, what are known as digital services taxes in jurisdictions. And these are unilateral measures that countries are adopting or proposing to adopt that really target companies in the digital space. They may, they'll tar they're a gross basis tax generally many are constructed in a way that makes them appear as though they're a sales tax and they are really they're really going after specific companies and specific business models so for instance targeted advertising digital interface services platforms that sell goods and services and touch consumers in their local jurisdiction and the the taxes range from you know about 2% of revenues to seven and a half percent of revenues or more. But these countries saw this as a way to, to force the issue, I think. And really, one, I think it was in response to some political pressure. Again, um, this notion that this populist notion that companies aren't paying their fair share. It's easy for tax authorities and for politicians to uh, impose taxes on non-residents. But then also there was a perception that really we needed to move much quicker on coming to a resolution on how we tax digital companies and how 
we update the international norms. And absent that quick resolution, these countries were taking steps to solve the issue, so to speak, from their perspective. And so many of these digital service taxes that have been enacted, and there are several now, are really posited as interim measures that will fall away or propose to fall away if this inclusive framework that's led by the OECD and its pillar one work stream comes up with a consensus view on how we should actually rewrite the rules to tax the digital economy. So it's kind of like a, kind of a two-pronged thing going on here. One is to fix the problem now to uh, raise revenue and then kind of secondarily, or maybe this is the, the primary reason is to expedite or push the OECD project forward. Yeah, that's, that's a fair characterization. It's interesting seeing these proposals because I, I see kind of a microcosm of this on the state side where just in the last year or so, we've had just a number of states that have come up with very similar taxes. Usually, you know, some of them are, are just expansions of sales tax, but some of them are actually specific taxes on certain digital services. And I think the, the headlining one has been uh, taxes on digital advertising. And a number of those uh, provisions have been shot down. But it seems like states are experiencing a lot of the same things that the, some of these foreign countries are experiencing. They say, hey, we got these big tech companies that aren't in our jurisdiction. How can we tax them uh, without harming our own constituents? So it's interesting just to see the parallels there. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think there are many parallels. And I think, you know, it'd be interesting to know how the states or, or how resolution is achieved on the state and local side when there are disputes and, and compare and contrast that to where we may be going on the international front. Because I, I fear that on the international front, we may end up in more controversy Whereas, and, and this is just my perception, and it could be wrong, that on the state side, we do have a Supreme Court that ultimately can decide the issues as between the states. And so hopefully that helps companies achieve some type of certainty with respect to their taxation. Whereas I think, and we'll get into it, I think where we're going on the international side is going to lead to a lot more cross-border controversy and a lot more uncertainty for companies as they operate in this uh, new environment. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think we necessarily have the certainty that one would expect, but we definitely definitely have a different regime in that we have a Congress that can regulate trade amongst the states. We have the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in on from time to time to prevent some of this trade war or tax war between states. So we kind of have a, a force mechanism, but it sounds like on the international side, it's really only a cooperation mechanism, which, uh, you know, it's good to cooperate, but but uh, it also requires a fair amount of compromise and maybe the, the solutions aren't always perfect for everyone. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, we're are on the international side, this is being led by supranational bodies that don't have any sovereignty in and of themselves. They're just a collective of sovereigns. And so they can recommend solutions, but each sovereign obviously has its own interests and certain companies, uh, certain countries are going to have an incentive to 
follow the, um, maybe all countries will have an incentive to follow the guidance generally, but certainly there are countries out there that find tax to be a, a means for competition to enhance their labor force or to achieve other objectives. And so without that governing body, that's, that's my fear is that you know, while we may reach a consensus initially, things happen and things change over time. And if things don't work out as anticipated, there is no, there is no cohesive framework, at least not yet. And I'm, I suspect may never be to really fully address the issues that could arise when countries decide to take different approaches to applying the rules or decide to deviate from the rules. And currently what we use is a bilateral treaty network and competent authorities to settle disputes among countries. Uh, but once you start moving in the direction that we're moving in, and you may already be there on the state and local side, kind of multilateral disputes, it, it becomes that much more difficult to reach a consensus in terms of how an issue should be resolved. Yeah, absolutely. At the risk of getting too deep into the weeds here, I, I want to talk about one aspect of Pillar 1 that I think is going to be really interesting to our state tax folks, and that's the whole nexus issue. Because that, I mean, that's something that we've been dealing with forever is when does a state have jurisdiction to tax? And it's always been so interesting to me that I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me and say, you know, I'll, I'll say, have you looked at the state tax issues of your inbound business? And they'll be like, no, no worries. We've already had analysis done. We don't have a permanent establishment. And I have to explain to them, well, that's great on the, on the federal front, but we have a whole different set of nexus yeah. rules for the states. So it, it, in the past, it's been more of a, it, even amongst the states, it's been kind of more of a physical presence concept, but with the Wayfair decision, now we're kind of going full throttle towards an economic presence approach, you know, first in, in the sales tax area, but it's starting to bleed over now into income taxes as well. It seems to me that's kind of the direction we're going with pillar one, or, or at least that's the direction that's being proposed. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think when you step back and look at it, you know, we have in the international space, we have Article 5, which is our nexus standard in international treaties and is widely adhered to. I mean, there are differences between the OECD westernized nation model of Article 5 and nexus and the United Nations model, which is more for developing countries. But by and large, we, we adhere to this notion of physical nexus uh, or physical presence. And I think Pillar 1 is taking us away from that and, and really is looking more at it is designed to address the issue of a lack of physical presence in a jurisdiction and yet how to give that jurisdiction a taxing right. And interestingly enough, I mean, you talk about Nexus, but you and I have had conversations about transfer pricing. And I think that equally, this is a issue of transfer pricing. And we're moving in the direction of more in the direction of a formulary apportionment type rule. We're looking at, and Pillar 1 is looking at, finding, some might say, a, a virtual permanent establishment in the local country, uh, but really it's focused on determining that users, consumers, the market itself is a key contributor to the overall profitability of a company 
and therefore something should be allocated to that market. And that is something that precedes the BEPS workstream. Back in 2010, 2011, 2012, developing countries at United Nations tax conventions, uh, meetings where um, delegates get together and talk about what the United Nations model should look like, uh, had long raised issues with marketplace allocations and the usual suspects, China and India, um, who have very large populations, arguably have an incentive to say that the market has value and therefore some, some value should be attributed to that. Well, fast forward now to this inclusive framework and in the work under Pillar 1, and what we see is an approach that's been proposed by the OECD Secretariat uh, known as the Unified Approach, which really is an amalgamation of other proposals that were made, including by the U.S., with a focus on allocating some element of profit to a market jurisdiction because there's a user or a consumer in that jurisdiction, even though you don't have physical presence in that jurisdiction. So that it's a it's a fundamental rethinking of not only the nexus issues, but I would say transfer pricing and and our discussions about you know the states looking more to transfer pricing well internationally we've built transfer pricing on the arm's length principle and one can argue i think fairly with, with a straight face that some of what's being done in pillar one is essentially a trojan horse to eliminate or really mitigate the application of the arm's length principle because we're really looking at things that, at least historically, have not been transactional or risk slash investment drivers of profit. It's interesting that this whole idea of looking more towards the market is, you know, the, the parallels continue with, you know, you know, we've had formulary apportionment on the state side forever, basically. And historically, when it comes to intangibles and services, it's you know, the, the apportionment's been based on the cost of performance, but lately we've seen a big drive from states moving to market-based sourcing. So we're looking, it's it's a shift from looking at the the inputs and the protections that the state gives on the business input and more to the market and the resources that the states give in providing a market. Yeah, and that's where that's where Pillar 1 is is headed. And the approach that's that's spelled out in Pillar One, really, I mean, just a this unified approach. Um, I don't want to belabor issue for folks that are not necessarily in the international tax base and having to to grapple with this. But just to give context, the unified approach kind of has three buckets of of profit that are essentially going to be allocated. I mean, you start by looking at a multinational's profit. And you could do that on a worldwide basis. You could do it on a business segment basis. And from that, you're going to remove a routine return, you know, kind of a, a return that's attributable to just routine functions. You know, that leaves a lot of questions. Of how do you do that? Is it different for different industries? But then you end up with the residual profit. And then it's this residual profit that the Pillar 1 unified approach is seeking to essentially reallocate. So normally we would have that profit. It would either be a split between a residence jurisdiction where your headquarters is, or 
in some cases a source jurisdiction, you know, where you might have a market and you might have physical presence. Now we're looking at splitting and allocating something from the probably the residence jurisdiction to not a, a jurisdiction where you have a market, uh, where you have a market, but where you don't have physical presence, as well as to a place where you have physical presence. So something has to give, someone has to give something up. And there are three amounts that are that are going to be allocated. One is, you know, a, a residual profit is going to be under what's known as amount A, first allocated to market jurisdictions. It's funny as you mentioned this. I, I have the the July 2019 inclusive framework progress report in front of me, and I'm looking at a flow chart for calculating amount A, and it looks yeah. really complicated. <laughs> It is it is incredibly complicated, and I think there's a lot of there are a lot of transfer pricing questions in this. Um, I, I think the um, the PE questions are are less significant because, quite frankly, we're just deeming there to be a PE in a market jurisdiction. And so, if you have, I think a, I think where this will end is if you have a certain level of sales in a jurisdiction, you're going to have a PE there, and you're going to, under this approach, be allocating something to that PE, whether that's a actual PE or a virtual PE, there will be some profit that's allocated to that jurisdiction. So that's amount A. Amount A is based on kind of this uh, notion of user participation. Something's allocated to the market jurisdiction. And then, of course, you've got to split that out and apportion it among all the market jurisdictions that a company may touch. And then you've got amount B, which is really focused on marketing and distribution activities, which I think is more traditional uh, or is more traditionally in line with what we would think is you know, the, the arm's length principle and how we would we would think of allocating profit. And this is really kind of allocating profit now based on actual functions. And then they had something called amount C, which was kind of a over and above amount B. If you're actually doing more than traditional marketing and distribution in a local market, then maybe there's an additional amount that gets allocated to the jurisdiction. So it, it becomes really complex and there are significant deviations from a transfer pricing perspective and and what's being done here and so yes it's it's quite an exercise and i think it'll be it, it leads to a lot of questions in, in terms of how it's done but it also leads to a lot of potential disputes in terms of who gets what and who gets to decide you know which countries get to decide where that profit goes and what happens when country c doesn't like that it's receiving an allocation less than country A, how does it, how does a company or how do the countries resolve a dispute of that nature? Yeah, that, that's interesting. Cause you know, we, we have that same issue on the state tax side, but uh, you know, we don't really care <laughs> if, 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 if not, you know, if, if, you know, if state A doesn't feel like it's getting enough income, you know, that that's kind of its own, you know, it, it, it's problem. We don't have this notion that a hundred percent of the tax and no more, no less needs to be tax you know there's you know with some shrewd planning you can be you know if you add up all of your tax liability in all the states you can be under 100 percent, or if you don't pay attention it can be over 100 percent. i think that's where we're going on the international side too so i think there's this uh, pillar one obviously um I, I think similar to what you find on the state side then will potentially give rise to double taxation and I find it hard to believe that there will be instances of double non-taxation, but I suppose anything's possible. I, I suspect 
there will be more disputes on allocating to the particular state or to the particular country and the incidence of double taxation will eclipse the incidence of double non-taxation. I'm sure smart folks like you will find ways, though, to periodically <laughs> get the double non-taxation. We certainly hope so. What's the status of Pillar 1? I, I know that there's been uh, some talk from the U.S. to put things on hold for a little bit, but maybe you can just tell us you know, what the next few steps are for this project. Yeah, so this entire exercise is politically charged, and I think it's um, no less politically charged in the era of COVID um, when everybody is now looking for additional revenue and states are grappling with how to kind of keep their economies afloat and dealing with a lot of different issues. But when this project really kicked off, there was a commitment by the OECD to really kind of deliver a consensus to the G20 ministers at the end of 2020. And so there has been this perception and desire to kind of move almost at breakneck speed to really come to a consensus on how we're going to tax other, you know, how we're going to attach the digital economy. Part of it was driven by this desire to avoid this proliferation of unilateral digital services taxes that exists out there. But as people dug into the materials, I think it became very clear that this really is a fundamental rewrite of the international tax rules. And, and oftentimes, this Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, but mainly Pillar 1 aspect of the inclusive framework's work um, is referred to sometimes as BEPS 2.0. But I think a lot of people think of this as this is really going well beyond BEPS and really is a fundamental rewrite of our entire system far beyond what BEPS did. And so I think there's always been a desire to make sure that you get it right and you don't make actions or, or make decisions hastily. And so last October, we saw this, this unified approach come out of the OECD. And then there were meetings on that. But then pretty quickly, we found ourselves into the era of COVID. Um, and I guess preceding this unified approach, maybe it's it's worth just giving a little bit of background on, you know, because I think it's it's good foreshadowing of where things may go. Back in July, France enacted a digital services tax. And as a result of that, our U.S. trade representative initiated a Section 301 investigation under the Trade Act of 1974, which basically allows the... U.S. Trade Representative to investigate other countries' action that might be harmful to U.S. commerce or discriminatory. And so in late 2019, in December, um, you may have seen the, the USTR proposed putting tariffs on French goods. So $2.4 billion or so of tariffs on sparkling wine and cheese and cosmetics and other things, I think designed to try and let countries know that, hey, this is a serious issue that we're dealing with and what you're doing could be discriminatory. And we really want to take a holistic approach and a, and a really educated approach to how we write these rules. We don't need to rush these things. Now, this was, you know, France had issued a digital services tax, I think, because it was tired of waiting for a consensus to emerge and wanted to put some pressure on the, the international community to get things done. 
Well, as we as we roll into 2020 and COVID hits, the message coming out of the G20 and the OECD, because the OECD is really designed to provide tools for the G20 finance ministers to utilize in, in managing their economies. But the message was, full steam ahead, we're going to continue with this Pillar 1 project. And so that continued, the work continued even as we rolled into March and April. And then around late May and June, some European finance ministers, Italy, the UK, and others, you know, sent a message to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin suggesting that, well, let's, let's come to a consensus on things that we can come to a consensus on. And maybe what we do is we initiate this pillar one approach, but really focus only on the digital economy. Don't focus on a broader consumer-facing grouping of companies, which is really where the U.S. had been, um, I think, focus is really kind of along the lines of that concept that you can't ring fence the digital economy. And we want to be careful about writing rules that too heavily focus on the digital economy because that may be discriminatory against U.S. technology companies. The U.S. had expected to broaden this um, set of rules so that if we're going to rewrite the rules that apply in international taxation, it shouldn't just be with respect to digital companies, but other companies that might utilize these technologies. And I think the notion there was, if you brought those other companies to the table, then all of a sudden, headquartered jurisdictions like, let's say, Germany may realize that if it wasn't just their digital companies, but it, it was their automobile manufacturers or it was their pharmaceutical companies that were now going to have to allocate some profit to a market country, meaning the U.S., we think really hard about how we write these rules as opposed to just writing these rules that seemingly target the Facebooks, Amazons, Microsofts, and similar companies that are all U.S.-based. So finance ministers in late May or early June wrote this letter to, to Mnuchin. And in response, Mnuchin requested a pause on this project. I suspect it was a pause needed because of the, co the measures that were being considered for stimulus in the U.S., but also, I think, a recognition of the fact that this is moving really fast and it's a fundamental shift in how we tax business in the international space. So we need to slow things down. And at the same time, Mnuchin uh, warned that there would be countermeasures if countries continued with their DSTs. And at the same time, then U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer came out with his new he newly initiated Section 301 investigations of a number of other countries that have proposed. Yeah, wasn't it like uh, 10 or so? Yeah, or, it, I mean, was, it was, I mean, it was, you know, Brazil, Turkey, um, uh, the United Kingdom, Czech Republic, several other, other uh, Spain. So other, other countries that had had adopted or were proposing these digital services taxes were now are now under investigation, much like France was last year. And so I think that's where we're at is um, in July, the individual responsible for managing the affairs of the OECD with respect to taxes extended somewhat of an olive branch and suggested that while there is a recognition that the G20 really would like to have a consensus at the end of 2020, the OECD will do everything that it can to try and achieve that consensus, but there may be practical limitations in the ability to do that. 
And I think that's where we sit now is we sit on the precipice of, you know, potential trade war uh, with respect to digital taxes with other countries sensing that maybe the Pillar One initiative is slowing down, at least temporarily, possibly going in their own direction and implementing their own digital service taxes. And then our U.S. Trade Representative initiating inquiries and potential conclusions that tariffs may be warranted. And the OECD hoping to achieve a consensus draft of how this Pillar One approach should work but recognizing that the U.S. has determined that it's on hold right now while it addresses other measures. I think that's all very fascinating. I'm very interested in seeing how it plays out. And, you know, some of these things do get implemented, you know, how that may or may not trickle down to the states. One thing we didn't get into, though, was guilty and pillar two. Uh, Can I get a commitment from you that we can... uh, do another episode and and dig into those issues as well. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Well, that was great stuff. I hope that after hearing from Brian, you now have a firmer grasp on what's going on with international tax reform and how it dovetails into some of the things that we are seeing on the state tax front. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next week, this is Matt Hunsaker for The State Tax Show. The State Tax Show podcast is produced by Baker and Hostetler, LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. The hiring of a lawyer is an important decision not be based solely upon advertisements. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.